0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human.
1: This week we had a masterclass on the surgical management of inflammatory bowel disease by Dr. Helen McCrae. Dr. McCrae is a colorectal surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and has an extensive background and amazing practice taking care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. On this episode we focused on the acute colitic and how to manage that patient in hospital as well as her technical tips and tricks for both total or subtotal colectomies, as well as J-Pouch reconstruction. So sit back and enjoy our discussion and conversation with Dr. Helen McRae.
0: I was wondering if you could tell us uh, where you grew up and, and what your training pathway looked
2: like. Okay, so I'm a Westerner originally. I grew up in Edmonton. I was born in Edmonton, raised there, um, and, Went um, from high school to the University of Alberta. At that time, it was you could do two years of pre med. So I did two years of pre med, and then I went into medical school directly after that as well at U of A. Um, then after that, um, I was looking initially I was interested in doing a trauma and ICU fellowship and I actually had a fellowship in ICU set up in Vancouver um, where my husband was in practice but one of my last rotations in general surgery was with a colorectal surgeon Ernie Weems, and he sort of said to me trauma and ICU that's going to keep you up at night and out of the OR And I sort of thought yeah you're right and I really loved his practice. Um, And so that's when I decided I wanted to do colorectal surgery. After I finished med school, that was in the 80s, mid 80s. At that time, most people in Western Canada were still doing a rotating internship. And so I went to St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver for a rotating internship. So during medical school, I really loved general surgery. But at the time in Edmonton, there were no female general surgeons, no female role models in general surgery. And I just wasn't sure if that was something I wanted to commit to long term. So that was another reason why I decided on the rotating internship. So I moved to Vancouver for a year. I lived there. Left St. Paul's in West End Vancouver. It was a very interesting year because it was in the height of AIDS. And I could tell you St. Paul's Hospital was really the height of AIDS Mm -hmm. in in the 80s. My first central line, I remember, was an IG, uh, um, a patient in ICU with PCP pneumonia. And I gave him not just a pneumothorax but attention pneumothorax (laughs) i've never i've never been able to put in a an ij line since then without uh, having my heart rate go up to about 150. anyway after um i finished my rotating internship i actually did a year of general practice locums in the interior but by that time i pretty much decided Mm -hmm. that i wanted to do general surgery so i applied to two programs UBC and uva and at the time i decided to go back to edmonton so i did my general surgery at the university of alberta um at a time that uh, i think uh, general surgery residency was pretty tough i was on call the last two years of my residency but really felt like you could deal with anything uh, when you finished i'm a lot more of a a was now than I think I was at the end of general surgery training.
0: Well, that's fascinating. I, I didn't ever know that you were from Edmonton. So I'm going to make the assumption and, and the the hopeful assumption with full disclosure that you're still an Oilers fan as opposed to a Leafs fan.
2: You know what? I'm a Raptors <laughs> <their snap. laughs> fan.
0: Hey, there you go. There so it's yeah. funny
2: because I grew up, my, my dad had tickets to the Oilers from when they were in the, was it WHL, World Hockey League?
0: Yeah, the WHA. Yeah, sure.
2: WHA. So he had seasonless tickets like through all the Gretzky years and everything. And I was dragged to a lot of hockey games um, and was there during the Stanley Cup run and everything. So I was a big Oilers fan then. But uh, since yeah. we Toronto, I have to say I'm more of a Raptors fan, although this is well, not looking good.
0: Yeah, it's been a tough year. That that that's really funny. We, I'm sure we were in the building at the same time because my parents growing up had those tickets, and they used to drop my brother and off my brother and I off, and we'd wander into the games and the the playoff games even, and they would go for dinner. I, and to this day, I, I can't figure out why they did that, but boy, we were lucky uh, beneficiaries of it. You know, one of the things that that Toronto is, uh, amongst many things, is clearly so well known for is the the powerhouse nature of of many high volume fellowships, and obviously I biased on the HPB transplant side of things, but um, your colorectal group for for decades has been recognized as, as one of the very preeminent colorectal fellowships in the world. How did that come about? And how have you guys achieved such a um, strong legacy and, and, and perpetual um, both academic and of course clinical um, uh, footprint?
2: So I think that Robin McLeod and Zane Cohen um, really were instrumental in developing the program and you know they really started at a time when um colorectal was really gaining ground you know at, around the time that pelvic pouches were starting to be done and um TME for rectal cancer was starting to be recognized and so they i think that Robin and Zane really complemented each other um Zane is a fantastic administrator and was really good to, at pulling together a team of people. So he brought GI radiology, pathology, stomatherapy, genetics, and nursing all together, um, really allowing for the comprehensive treatment of colorectal cancer and colorectal patients. And I think at that time, you know, now we sort of talk about the team-based approach and everything, but I think if you're thinking about the eighties, um, medicine was probably still a lot more siloed than it is right now. And I think Zane has always been very good at bringing people together for a common goal. And then Robin um, is had clinical epidemiology training. She's got a motor and an engine like nobody you've seen. Marcus Bernstein always says she's the best three people I know. And it's true. I mean, Robin oh, that's great. really can get an incredible amount accomplished. And so I think she really ran with developing databases and um, getting research off the ground and looking at quality of life measures. Again, really getting in on the forefront of that type of thing when it, when people were just starting to look at um, quality of life as an important outcome for surgery so i think the two of them really worked synergistically and the rest of us have just been riding on their coattails they were also both fantastic surgeons and teachers so that combination really developed a really good program and then they put together the fellowship bringing other colorectal surgeons from around the city marcus bernstein richard resnick ted ross claude burl were all um, part of the fellowship and i think that really got things started and off to a good grant.
0: well i think i think you're too humble Uh, you know all all of you guys as you as you insinuate have have contributed so much to that fellowship and and your your legions of trainees will will certainly uh and do often um comment on that you you know one of the things i think we know you nationally for is your your uh, uh essentially as a master surgical educator your your work in surgical education you were, for sure, the the director of the Surgical Skills Center in in Toronto, and amongst many many other things. And one of our uh, uh, it's a it's a paper that you and Richard Resnick wrote, I think, almost 15 years ago, give or take, in the New England Journal. Yeah. We we yeah. quote that paper a lot on on uh, on some of the trauma simulation stuff and on some of the the spaceflight stuff that Andy Kirkpatrick and the group of us do here as well. Um, in terms of uh, how you talked about virtual reality and simulation in the field of surgical education really, really early compared to really almost everyone else in the world. How did that sort of evolve? And, and I'm curious how that paper came to be. And, and where do you see the big challenges in that arena going forward for, for surgery, for surgery and surgical training in particular?
2: Well, I have to say that there I was writing on Richard's coat because I think Richard was really, um, you know, he was one of the first people that had um uh, master's in education, um, and looked at surgical education as a career pathway, Um, you know, putting surgery and education together, like other people maybe put clinical epidemiology and surgery or basic science and surgery together. And so Richard, um, very early was interested in the idea of ex vivo training, for surgical skills. And the, one of the first labs in North America for surgical skills training really was here at Mount Sinai. And that was started in the early 90s, early to mid-90s. Um, and at that time, you know, we also developed a curriculum for our PGY1s and 2s in um, technical skills training in the lab. So I think that um, based on the research that we had done here um, in terms of teaching technical skills and, and how that can transfer to the operating room, that's where that paper it came from. Um, at the time, we were pretty early in virtual reality. And I think in some ways, we're still not that far along in the use of virtual reality and surgical training. Um, But I think that overall people have embraced ex vivo training of surgical skills and and moving some of the technical training outside of the operating room.
1: Uh, I think that's well said, and, and like I said before we started the the podcast, we could talk to you about the surgical education stuff at length as well. But we wanted to leverage your other, uh, you know, area of expertise, and, and really you've become a, a guru in in Canada and in North America for for inflammatory bowel disease patients. And right off the hop, the the one thing I wanted to ask you at, to start off with is why did you get interested in IBD? You know, I think. Um, Rightly or wrongly, a lot of surgeons actually kind of are are uh, worried about IBD pa- patients and that patient population because sometimes it can be a challenging patient population to treat. So, what what drew you to IBD initially?
2: So, I am. Um, so, why I like IBD? First of all, having done uh, my fellowship at Mount Sinai, we really did a lot of IBD during fellowship. But I really like the IBD patients um, and the IBD surgery. I love IBD surgery. At this stage of my career, it's pretty much all I'm doing. I do the occasional other benign or malignant colorectal case. But I would say 95% of what I do now is IBD surgery. People say that the IBD patients are challenging, but when you think about these poor patients, I I think you just have to be a little empathic about them. You know, here are these poor 20 year olds that are trying to get through their education, meet somebody, get on with their life. You know, it's a time of life that's very exciting and lots of things going on. And on top of all of the normal things that people struggle with, you know, what am I going to do in my career? Who am I going to marry? These four pa- these pe- patients have, also have to deal with a chronic illness that's not an easy illness necessarily to talk about. Um, and so I think it can really have a devastating effect I find that a lot of these patients who've had a lot of encounters with the healthcare system for them, you know, the lack of control over their life can be an issue. And so, I just try to think about where they are in their life. And I don't find the vast majority of them are difficult. Once you get to know them and know what their fears are, I don't really find that they're difficult patients there are the occasional ones but there are the occasional difficult patients in any field i mean trauma the patients aren't exactly known as being fantastic also the ibd surgery i mean i think that there's a nice mix of you know fairly straightforward cases like subtotal colectomies and then the more some of the more challenging crohn's patients or redo pouches. So it's it's kind of a nice mix of operations I, I find as well.
1: I think that's really uh, well said. And um, I, I think you're right that the stereotype isn't really true. And, and it's so important to have that understanding of, of how hard that must be uh, to just be in so many different uh, healthcare situations and, and uh, have to meet so many different providers and tell your story again and again and then deal with all the symptoms that they have to deal with. So I, I think that's totally right. So why don't we uh, segue into a, a scenario that uh, I was hoping to to leverage your expertise on. Um, so I, th- I think a pretty common scenario is, you're, you know, you're the general surgeon on call and you get a 35-year-old female with newly diagnosed uh, ulcerative colitis. And she's uh, sort of in that uh, state where she's she's presenting acutely with 15 to 20 bloody bowel wounds per day, uh, abdominal pain. She's tachycardic. How do you approach that patient who's sort of presenting in, in, uh, you know, sort of a fulminant colitis type picture?
2: Well, I think that some of the key elements that you want to think about on history and physical examination is, first of all, I want to know, you know, when I get called from our gastroenterologists about an acute colitic, how worried do I have to be? Like, is this somebody that I'm worried is going to perforate in the near future? Like, how sick do they look? Um, do they have fever, tachycardia, anything, do things have to be done urgently, or do we have a bit of time? And, and so that's sort of my first overall approach is how sick are they? I have to say that most of the time, like unless there's something that you urgently have to operate on, you have time to sort of get to know the patient a little bit give medical therapy a chance to work. Um, So I usually will go in, I'll introduce myself, take a little bit of a history of their disease, look at how sick they are, and if they look like someone who still has the option for some medical management of their colitis, then I kind of back off a little bit and let the gastroenterologist deal with them initially. We do talk a little bit about surgery. but I'd like to initially just kind of introduce the idea of surgery without giving without overwhelming someone with too much information if we have time to do that
1: I'm curious Dr. McCray, at Mount Sinai do do uh, the gastroenterologist sort of consult you on uh, almost any eye, uh, ulcerative colitis patient that they admit to hospital you know I know in Calgary uh, where I did residency um, the The group at the foothills actually had a very good relationship with uh, Dr. McLean and Dr. Bowie, and so they sort of had this agreement that they would um, ask the surgeons to kind of be involved with anyone that they thought potentially might need surgery, even if they were fairly certain that um, you know that the medical management would be an option in that patient, um, just to sort of have them be involved from the get go, so there's not sort of a uh you know an emergency situation where you're coming in meeting the patient the first time is that sort of the relationship you have at mount sinai or or how does that uh, relationship play out
2: yes it it really is the type of relationship that we have pretty much anyone that they're thinking of putting on steroids or um you know is quite is sick enough to be admitted to hospital and i have to say the vast majority of them we probably don't operate on on that admission but You know, a lot of times, um, I think that patients need to know what the alternatives are because otherwise they're making decisions based on a fear of something. And so I think it's important for patients to see a surgeon and to have a discussion about what surgery involves, what the reconstructive options are and everything so that they're not making decisions um, based on a fear of surgery. The other problem sometimes is that gastroenterologists and patients get into um, a, almost like a cycle where surgery is a failure, as opposed to surgery is another treatment option. You know, and for patients that have failed uh, a couple of biologics, I, I think that it's important. I always tell our gastroenterologists, once they're switching biologics, just to have the conversation about surgery, I think is important for patients just so that they really know what their decision, Mm -hmm. what their options are, as opposed to just making a decision based on fear of of surgery.
1: Yeah. And I, I want to come back to that in a second, because I think that's so critical. Uh, in terms of how you have that discussion and and frame that whole decision, because uh, as you say, it really does uh, have. There's this perception for patients that if they have to have surgery, that that they failed, you know, that word failed medical management really does play heavily into patients' minds. Uh, so I I want to come back to that here in a second, uh, but before we do that, is I I just want to ask for completeness' sake, um, is there any workup that you routinely make sure happens for these patients? Um, You know, let's say uh, you know who who gets admitted—they're fulminantly—they're they they have fulminant colitis, uh, they're being treated medically, uh, but yet they still seem like they're heading towards surgery. Is there any workup or imaging that you sort of routinely uh, want to see before uh, you you'll consider them for surgery?
2: Um, Well, generally, they will have sort of the whole um, workup, including. You know looking for c diff looking for cmv making sure you know that there's nothing other than colitis that's treatable um if they're quite sick we'll usually get a ct scan just to to um, make sure that there's no small bowel inflammation not that that's really going to change anything in a really sick colitic um but uh, and then often a flex sig just to make sure again that there aren't any surprises but other than that i don't think that there's anything i really would feel strongly i needed in your 35 year old i'd want to make sure that her sphincter was okay even pre-operatively because you know somebody that's had uh, vaginal deliveries if they had any sort of instrumental delivery, there's almost always a sphincter injury, and it's not that it's going to change the first operation, but it does potentially change their options for a long ter- for the long term. So, I always assess the sphincter muscle.
1: Um, I know usually the gastroenterologists are sort of involved uh, in charge of the medical management uh, piece of this, but how do you sort of think about? Um, the triggers for surgery and in the context of medical management? You know, uh, obviously, I think the mainstay for these patients is getting put on uh, IV steroids. Uh, but, how, you know, what are the things in your mind that say that will tell you, you know, look, this person needs to have surgery. Um, is there a time frame that goes through your head or sort of a treatment pathway that these patients go down to that, that really tells you that, you know what, this patient just needs to have surgery?
2: I think that they that um, sometimes they're a little bit slower than we would be. Um, If somebody hasn't responded at all within 72 hours of IV steroids, I think you've got to be thinking either something else or surgery. Um, If there's obviously anything that makes you worry, like they've got peritonitis, if they've got fever, then those things make me very concerned. The other thing that I like to look at a little bit is the albumin when it's starting to get really low. I think that that's a bad sign. Um, so I keep an eye on the albumin and nutritional status as well.
1: I think the hard part, Dr. McCray, sometimes is that you know the, the, there will be a patient who perhaps gets a little bit better on steroids and they're already on a biologic and the and, uh, gastroenterologists are talking about. You know, switching them to another biologic, as as you talked about, how do you sort of navigate that situation where you know they're they're not sick and well, you know, they're not getting sicker, I should say, uh, but they're not clearly uh, ready to go home or or they're, or they're not better yet. They haven't clearly responded, um, uh, especially in that scenario where you might have to switch biologics. How do you sort of navigate that particular scenario?
2: So that particular scenario, I mean, with the non-urgent. Colytic, I, I have to say that I never try to push them into surgery, because patients have to feel ready for surgery. And obviously, unless it's life threatening, a life threatening situation, but in patients that are just sort of grumbling, I start to talk a little bit about the inevitability of surgery that you know, you failed a biologic, the likelihood that suddenly the next biologic is going to make a huge difference is starting is is probably reasonably small. That if you want to try it as long as you're otherwise relatively stable, you can. But I I, I start sort of pointing out that they're feeling very unwell, but likely um, with surgery, they're going to feel better a lot sooner. Um, I quote quality of life studies suggesting that patients with colitis that end up needing surgery, 96 to 97% feel that their quality of life is better after surgery. So those are the types of things I would talk to them about. But again, you know, unless it's really life threatening, the patient has to feel ready for surgery. But I find that as you sort of start to come and talk to them a little bit and have developed a bit of a rapport with the patient so that they trust you a little bit more. Um, most of the time, they end up getting the surgery.
1: Can you walk me through how you approach that discussion? Because I've, I've seen a lot of people do this, that discussion, particularly in hospital. And what what always strikes me is that it's it's very hard to do that uh, discussion because there's so many different aspects and things that you have to think about, you know, particularly in young uh, patients, you know, there's the, the aspect of sexual dysfunction and fertility. Um, there's there's the medication mm-hmm. side of it. There's the, you know, the symptom side of it. Uh, you know, all those different factors kind of play into it, you know, the, the previous information that they have received. Uh, about surgery, all of those kind of factors play into that discussion and their perception of surgery. So uh, can you walk me through how you actually approach that discussion?
2: I talk a lot about how they feel overall because I think that, you know, you have the acute situation, but most of the patients, especially the ones that have failed the biologic, have had sort of chronic disease for quite a while. And so what I ask them to reflect upon is how they are compared to other people they know their age, what their energy level is like. You know, can they go to the park with their kids? Can they um, reliably do what mm-hmm. they want to do? Or are they allowing the disease to take over their life? And most patients with sort of chronic ulcerative colitis, when they re- have sort of this grumbling um, pancolitis, when they really reflect on their quality of life overall—not just right now in hospital, but but what, how the disease has affected their life overall—they recognize that they they're chronically fatigued, that they aren't doing everything that they want to do, you know, that they are missing hockey games, et cetera, because of their disease. And so I really try to frame surgery as a quality of life. Um, Interventions so that they look sort of more broadly rather than just right now trying to deal with the acute phase, sort of looking at getting better for the long term.
1: So um, let's go back to our scenario. You know, this this patient that uh, got admitted uh, needs a colectomy. They haven't responded after uh, 72 hours, and uh, it's clear that they need surgery. Can you talk uh, us through briefly how you approach the uh, laparoscopic total abdominal colectomy uh, in this situation? Um, you know everything from from sort of positioning to, to ports. How how do you sort of uh, approach that operation?
2: Okay, so always have the marked for stoma preoperatively. Always, um, to the point that at our hospital we have um, stoma therapists, but we also have Uh, nurses on the surgical wards that are trained to do proper stoma marking because quality of life with a stoma is completely dependent on how good a stoma you get and one of the important factors is where's that stoma cited and so you can't cite a stoma properly with a patient lying on the table asleep in the operating room you have to get you have to have it cited ahead of time so in terms of um, the surgery, I, I'm lazy, so I do it supine. I don't put them in stirrups. When you're, If you're going to um, do it supine, you, you do have to be able to work a little bit backwards um, at the splenic flexure. But uh, I find that, that that's fine. So I have both arms checked, patient supine. At the start of the procedure, I always put in a rectal tube. And so I use a 30 Foley, um, just blow up the balloon with 10 cc's. And the reason I put it in at the start of the procedure is first of all, then I don't forget at the end of the procedure. Sometimes the patient's waking up at the end of the procedure. And so it's more of a pain to get it in. Um, Also, as you manipulate the rectum during the case, Sometimes you'll get stool coming out, so it keeps the area cleaner. So I always start with a um, rectal tube in, a catheter in. Uh, I put my 12-millimeter um, camera port uh, just above the umbilicus, and then I do two 5-millimeter port, two ports on either side. I always uh, start with the... Um, Medial to lateral approach, and I start on the right colon. Um, so I do a high ligation of the ileocolic. So if you do a high ligation of the ileocolic, you're not tethering uh, the TI as much, and so you actually get up a better stoma. But also in the long term, for a pouch procedure, you actually have more length. You, there's always sort of a fifteen centimeter um, segment of TI that has a vessel that that uh, it's kind of the continuation off of the SMA. Um, And so if you do a distal ligation of the iliocolic, that vessel is more um, the TI is less mobile than if you do a high ligation. So always a high ligation. So I do a medial to lateral approach. I start coming underneath the iliocolic vessel. Um, mobilize all the way uh, up, bring down the duodenum, and I go to underneath the transverse colon, then I'll go laterally to the lateral attachments, and then inferiorly as much as I can. I take the ileocolic vessel with the ligature. Um, And then after I've completely mobilized from medial to lateral, I go inferior medial and make sure that the terminal ileum is really well mobilized off the retroperitoneum. And then you should just have um, the lateral attachments. I just go through those quickly with the hook. I, so the patient has been pretty much in Trendelenburg, right side up for this part of the procedure. And then I move them into head up, and I take the hepatic flexure. So um, to do that, I use the two left-sided ports. I try to grab tissue as little as possible when I'm doing anything laparoscopically. So I do a lot of mobilizing just by holding things up with my graspers, but I don't actually grab anything with the grasper. So to mobilize the hepatic flexure, I use the left lower port, and I bring my grasper sort of alongside the um, transverse colon lift. Pulling it down and lifting it up, and then you can just use the ligature and come through, uh, taking the hepatic flexure down. Is that clear?
1: Yeah, that's that's great. You answered a bunch of the questions that I had uh, up front. Um, you know, for, for about the rectal tube and uh, about ports. You know, I, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, the you, I'm glad that you brought up the point about the high ligation because I think you know intuitively you think, well, this is a benign disease. Uh, why wouldn't I just stay high up on the on the bowel wall, um, and you know not have to deal with the vessel that way? But uh, that's such a uh, such a a great point that I, I hadn't thought of. Uh, and it...
2: pouch length, pouch length. If you're if you're if it's a first time pouch, and people are having trouble with length, it's usually because they've done a distal ligation.
1: Okay, so you you've done the hepatic flexure. You you I assume carry that along the transverse colon and then do you kind of attack the splenic flexure next or, 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 do you go to the,
2: so I always take the omentum with the colon. I do not leave the omentum behind anybody that does a lot of redo surgery hates the omentum. So the omentum goes. So, so the next thing I do is I get into the lesser sac. So, um, I take, so usually I'm helping somebody through this. So what I do is I'll take, um, grab the um, omentum just beneath the gastropoploic and sort of open things up and we get into the lesser sac and then take the omentum towards the splenic flexure and then finish it off um, towards the hepatic flexure as well so that the omentum is now divided, um, the leucolic is divided and the splenic flexure is still there. I find that the most nerve-wracking part of a colectomy for me is the transverse mesocolon. And if you've mobilized both the hepatic and the splenic flexure, then that's all really floppy and it's harder, I think, to take the transverse mesocolon. So I like like to leave the splenic flexure and then I go back and get the transverse mesocolon. Yeah, and how I take the transverse mesocolon, so this is benign disease. So if you go back to the cut edge um, where you've taken your iliocolic, you can now um, from the right side put a grasper there and you drape the transverse colon over top of your grasper what you're doing then is you're displaying the whole transverse mesocolon. Uh, It's right there. So beneath you is the SMA and the small bowel mesentery. The colon is draped over top of your grasper. So then you can just take the ligature and just come right across the transverse mesocolon and you know you're safe, right? In a really skinny patient, you actually can get way too close to the SMA. Whereas if you've if you're draping it over, you've got some extra length there. And so you know you're safe as you're coming across the transverse mesocolon. So at this stage, I have the all of the mesentery up to probably getting close to the splenic flexure done. And so then I will come on the left side. Um, I think that one mistake people make when mobilizing left colon is they go a little too far laterally. As you sort of lift up the colon, um, you almost can see a little bit of a groove fairly close to the colon. So I I try to get into that groove and then I'll sort of bluntly mobilize the colon off um, and and get around the flexure that way. if you just follow the white line, you end up at the spleen. That's not where you wanna be. You wanna be more medial. And I think that people, you really have to make a conscious effort to stay medial on that mesocolon on the left. So I mobilize the left side and the flexure from the left side mostly, and then I'll lift the colon up and, and start taking the left colon mesentery.
1: Okay, so um, the, the other kind of, I think couple of important questions that I, that I wanted to get to um, was like, how much distal sigmoid or, or like, do you go to the top of the rectum? Do you take the superior hemorrhoidal artery? Uh, you know, there seems to be some difference in, in the way that people approach that particular thing. And, you know, some of the colorectal surgeons always talk about leaving the superior hemorrhoidal so that, they, you know, when they do the pouch, you can follow that. Uh, plane to the rectum what's your take on that
2: so the um you should leave the ima alone you're much more likely to injure pelvic nerves if you have to go back and somebody has already been in that plane so my approach is that you want to leave enough rectosigmoid in that if you're coming across the colon if it falls apart you can bring it out as a lateral mucous fistula so if it's a fat patient, you have to leave it in more than if it's a skinny patient. Um, and so, I want to leave. So I I never go down to the top of the rectum. I leave a little bit of distal sigmoid in, but just enough that I can bring it out as a mucus fistula if I have to. So, so the thing that, the thing that bothers me if somebody else has, um, you know, sometimes when people aren't doing a lot of subtotals for ulcerative colitis they feel that they have to get um, as much out as possible in a way and you know they'll go down even to the peritoneal reflection and that makes the redo surgery much more difficult because now you're suddenly in redo planes around all the nerves that you don't want to injure so you really want to stay out of the pelvis and you want to leave enough length that if you have a rectal stump blowout you can exteriorize it if you have to. So
1: that was going to be my next question. So you know, let let's say postoperatively the, the patient develops what looks like a rectal stump a blowout clinically and, and radiologically. How do you sort of approach that particular scenario?
2: So most of the time they get pretty sick because the patients that have a rectal stump blowout, they've usually had pretty bad colitis and it's not usually just a tiny blowout. It's usually the whole thing. I mean, obviously if it was just a small leak contained leak, I wouldn't operate, but most of the time you do have to operate. Um so if hopefully enough rectal length has been left that you can bring out a mucus fistula, I do bring out a mucus fistula. I do it in the left lower quadrant, almost like a McBurney's incision lateral to the rectus muscle. Um, so you don't have to bring it through the rectus because it's not going to be a stoma. Um, And so it's just easier, you know, the abdominal wall is thinner if you go lateral to the rectus. And so that's, I think it's important not to bring a mucous fistula up through an incision, because if you bring it up through an incision, your whole incision is going to be infected, and you're going to have a hernia. Um, And so mucous fistulas should be away from the incision. And that's another reason why, though, to leave the rectal stump long to begin with is that sometimes, you know, you come across it with a stapler and it just falls apart in front of your eyes. And if you've gone down low and that's the case, you're sort of screwed, you know, you don't really, if you don't have the length to bring it out. So I always assume it's going to fall apart and always leave enough in that I can bring it out if I have to.
1: How long do you leave the rectal tube in generally?
2: I always joke that, uh, we'll step on it as you're walking out the hospital or, but, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll try to leave it in till they're pretty much ready to go. So three or four days, if I can, um, sometimes if they're pretty miserable and it's not draining much, I'll take it out at two or three days.
1: So let's say now you have that, that patient that you've done this up total on, they've, they've done well, they, have uh, recovered, they're they're back in your office, and you're and you're thinking about doing a J pouch on them. Is there any are there any big considerations that that you think about preoperatively when you're thinking about someone taking someone for a J pouch?
2: So someone where I've reviewed the pathology, it's ulcerative colitis. There aren't any concerns about underlying Crohn's disease. A female, we've talked about fertility issues, et cetera, They don't want to have their babies now and have the pouch done afterwards. If it's a woman, um, I think the fertility issues are important, but also um, if they've had previous vaginal deliveries, really assessing the sphincter well, as I spoke about before. Um, and anything else in particular you were thinking about or wanted me to cover? Or
1: no, those were the, the those were the kinds of things I you know I I had in my mind, um, and uh, I think that you raised the point that was so important about the, the reviewing the pathology because you don't necessarily know what, what you might find uh, incidentally in that specimen. So I think that's such a, an important point. Yeah,
2: and uh, if they've had their subtotal colectomy done elsewhere, I usually will have our GI pathologists review the pathology. I also have to say that I think that probably Crohn's is overcalled a little bit by non-GI pathologists because when you have a really fulminant colitis, you can get transmural inflammation. And so if somebody has had, it's not that common to get a really fulminant colitis with Crohn's disease. So if somebody is referred to me for sort of a completion proctectomy because of Crohn's, I'll usually get that pathology reviewed as well. And often um, the diagnosis will be changed to ulcerative colitis.
1: You're such a high volume uh, pouch surgeon. Can you walk us through how you approach that operation sort of at a 30,000 foot level?
2: So I do most of them as a laparoscopic-assisted approach if the subtotal was done um, laparoscopically. If the subtotal was done open, I just do the pouch open because really the evidence for lap pouches in terms of benefits, there isn't really great evidence. So it's mostly long-term, you know, the incision and adhesions. Um, so if they already have a midline incision I just go with the midline incision um, I think first you want to assess the small bowel I take down any adhesions um, make sure that it looks like there's lots of length um, if they've had a subtotal and they've had an ileostomy for a while it's pretty rare that they don't have length um, if I was doing sort of a Two stage pouch, say for dysplasia or FAP, where um, you're doing the subtotal colectomy and rectal dissection at the same operation. The only patient that you might worry a little bit about length in is the really big male. And so, you know, I think before you start the rectal dissection, you just want to make sure that length's not going to be an issue. Although, first time pouch if you do a high ligation of the ileocolic length doesn't tend to be an issue. Um, the, so you want to assess the small bowel if they've had surgery elsewhere especially. I just want to make double check, make sure there's nothing that looks like Crohn's disease. I take down all of the adhesions um, if they look at what the length is going to be like. And then I start with the rectal dissection. With the rectal dissection, you have to remember this is benign disease. It's not malignant disease. So I start a little bit higher with my um, incision along the peritoneum and sort of come down along the mesorectum so that I really make sure that that I'm getting the nerves back. I stay right on the mesorectum all the way down. But then as I get down um, to sort of below the peritoneal reflection, I tend to cone in on, on, on the rectum a little bit more than you would do for cancer. Again, it's not cancer. And so the thing that the patients are most worried about is um, pelvic nerve damage. So I come in on the mesorectum a little bit. But it's important that you get low enough. And so one of the tricks is once the rectum goes from sort of having that ampulla to start t- starting to thin down a bit, that means that you're you're getting low enough. So once you can kind of get your kind of get your thumb and index finger right around the rectum, that means that you're starting to get into the anal canal, and that's when where I start to check on my length. Distally, I have to say that I um, always do my distal stapling open. So I'm a bit of an old timer that way. I, I hate the endo-GIA across the distal rectum. You know, when you see people could chunk across the distal rectum two or three times and, you know, you only get one good shot at a pouch. Um I can get a nice TA-30 right across the rectum, one nice staple line. Um, and I can usually do that through a four or five centimeter fan and steel incision. I, I just think it's safer than going across multiple, with multiple firings of the GIA. And I don't know. I haven't figured out a good way to get the GIA across the distal rectum.
1: Oh, It always seems like there's it, it, it's just not either it's the yeah, the stapler's too big or or you have to take multiple uh bites of it with a smaller stapler so yeah, i i i hear what you're saying there's no real nice way to do it yeah
2: whereas whereas with the you know with the when you're doing it open through the fanny you know you've got one TA30 that's it and you've got a nice if you're at the distal rectum if you're within the anal canal you know you've got one nice staple line and I'm not sure that avoiding that five centimeter fan and steel is worth um, making a suboptimal distal staple line.
1: Then how do you construct the pouch, Dr. McCray?
2: So um, I've taken down the ileostomy, transected um, distally. So then I would say 99% of the time I do a J-pouch. So... I like to do a staple J with the mesentery anterior and the pouch posterior. If you think about how the mesentery comes, if you put the mesentery anterior, you've actually got the most length on the mesentery. If it's posterior, you're pulling the mesentery down along the sacrum and I think you, you have a little bit less length there. So, so what I do is I pull the, um, small bowel down to the pubis and I hold sort of what will be the apex of the pouch and try to measure so that there's about 18 to 20 centimeters pouch length and then I lift it up so that the bowel falls posterior to the mesentery and the mesentery is going to lie anteriorly and then that's where I put um, make an enterotomy to do the apex of the pouch I've started making my pouches with three firings of the endo-GIA. I used to use the um, GIA 80, but we've had quite a few staple line leads, And because the endo-GIA has the three staple lines, I, I just feel a little bit more comfortable with that now. And so I've been doing three firings of the endo-GIA to make the pouch. And then... Uh, use the EEA 28 oh, one, one other one other little technical thing when I put in my anvil I always make sure that my knot and my ends on the on the um, circle on, sorry in the proline stitch for the anvil, lies directly anteriorly on the pouch because when you've got a small incision and you're doing a lap pouch, it just helps you a little bit with orientation if you know that that's the direct anterior part of the pouch. So I leave those a little bit long, not so long that they're going to get caught in a staple line, but just so that I can see them. So I always make sure that that's how I put in my purse strength.
1: What do you do, Dr. McRae, if you know you're struggling to actually get length on a pouch uh, we talked about this a little bit, but are there any strategies that you uh, employ if you're if you're struggling to get uh, a pouch down?
2: So you really have to mobilize um, off of the duodenum. Um, so you know you're more going to have problems with length on a handsome pouch on a redo pouch, but there you really want to get every the SMA off the duodenum, um, the mesentery off the duodenum is. As- as far up as possible. Um, again, going back to high ligation of the ileocolic, make sure that that's not holding you back. I'd say that for a first-time pouch, especially, those are the maneuvers that you really need. Um, for a redo pouch, you really need someone above and below to help get the pouch down because you have to sort of um, wriggle the pouch down from above. Um, within the rectal cuff that you have left. But mobilizing off the duodenum, high ligation of the ileocolic. I, I don't find that, you know, if you look in textbooks, people talk about making little um, cuts in the mesentery. I've never had to do that. And I, it makes me nervous to do that because I think you're potentially gonna get a hematoma in the mesentery and maybe affect the blood supply of the pouch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you see those pictures in the textbook and it makes you <laughs> incredibly incredibly nervous uh, thinking about that. But,
2: but if you look at those pictures, actually it was Marcus Bernstein's article when he was a fellow at the Lehigh. That's the uh, pictures people are looking at. But if you look at those pictures, they have not done a high ligation of the ileocolic.
1: Um, you know, Dr. McCray, there's so much more that we could talk to you about, uh, about all these different things. And, and we actually had a whole scenario Another scenario about Crohn. so we'll have to bring you back on the show. But one thing I, I did want to just ask you in closing, which is a, a question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is, you know, you've had this career doing so many uh, amazing things with such a, a, you know, complex but 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 interesting practice, all the work that you've done in surgical education. So so having had the career that you've had thus far, um, how if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a trainee, what would that advice uh, be?
2: I think, you know, and partly when I was going to do ICU and trauma, that was partly training for a job as opposed to training for what I really wanted to do. And so I, I think you really have to follow what you like, follow what your passions are and follow um, where your interests are. The other thing that's been extremely important to me and to my career is to have mentors and to seek out mentors that are really going to tell you the truth, have your back, um, give you good advice. And you know, for me, I had Robin and Zane um, on the surgical side of things, and and Richard Resnick on the education side of things. And and I I have to say, I think everything I've accomplished in my career is directly attributable to those people because they really set the groundwork and it's difficult to do things completely on your own you know mentors are really important so seek them out
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This podcast was edited and produced by Tyler Daniels. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.